is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. Happy Sunday, everyone. Happy Sunday. Stanley's got Ebola. Yeah. I'm dying. Yeah, Stanley no, no, is... Stanley really doesn't have Ebola, but we he does have the itis. But Stanley has is something. dying, yeah. He still has the itis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what well, type you know, of itis? Otherwise, like, the next thing you know, the fire department's going to come running through the door thinking you really have Ebola. Yeah. I um went to Angel of Harlem for brunch this morning, so I had the itis, and I'm super tired. Silly, how did you make it to brunch this morning? I did not you go to Angel of Harlem. Why are you so gullible? Oh, I really thought he was. I really this thought he coming did that. from the queen of April Fool's yeah, jokes. Yeah, right. Over That's why here. you're yeah. so good at April Fool's <laughs> jokes, is because you're so gullible that it's surprising that you can pull them so off. So Selena, yeah, Selena, I guess um, thinks that she pulled an April Fool's joke on me I yesterday. I did, Stanley. I have the. So, t- I screenshot yes, it. Okay, guys. She can show you the screenshot. She got the proof. So. The point of it was like I I was pretty sure she was lying to me about three messages into the conversation. So I said April Fools, and she said no. So I said okay, maybe I should go along until she says April Fools, so I can go to bed. <laughs> because when she when she mess because the very next message was which segment am I doing? I want to take a nap. And then she told me, and I stopped responding. The the way I know Stanley was got is because he literally wrote, good one. Thank you. So he acknowledged the fact that he was pranked again. How did the message go, Selena? You wrote, good one. I have the screenshot. So just admit it. You know, so when you were pranking Jackie, I, like, was busy. So I didn't see the, the message chain until after you said April Fool's. So, like, I knew it was an April Fool's joke when I first looked at all the messages, but had I have just seen your initial message saying that you couldn't get the, get the guest, which we do have a guest today, um, which we'll preview for you in a second, I totally would have fallen for that as well. I well, know. nothing was so. as good as last year when Selena told us that she was getting a very conservative right-wing pastor to come well, in. Well, the one the down the block, he's pretty right, notorious. To talk about, um, <laughs> you know, like marriage equality and, and access yeah. to abortion, and we all were- freaked out. Didn't his church go out of business? Yeah, they did. did. Really? Didn't like a gay that. church yeah, buy his true. church? No, a, a, a homeless shelter that caters to LGBT um, teens. Great. Is oh. that what's going in there? I believe so. Oh, I believe great. I, I believe an organization took awesome. that over. But well, listen, the people across from Westboro Baptist apparently bought the property and painted the fence totally rainbow. That's awesome. Right. So. I'm sorry, guys. So we're like having five million inside conversations. You never underestimate the power of petty white people with money. Um, right. yeah, so uh, if you guys are just tuning into the show for the first time, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where we talk about social issues, politics, foreign policy, and we do that all from a millennial perspective. We're all millennials, except for Stanley. I don't know what age Raggy falls into, but my name dirty is dirty so- old man. Right, yeah. I, I think that's what it is, uh, dirty old man. So my what about name- the replace like they did they did black on Viv. What'd you Keep say? What? <laughs> so what about the replace like they oh did black on Viv? Anyway, oh Stanley. So my name is Selena Hill on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at Miss Selena Hill, and I spell Miss with an M S. Because she's so special. <laughs> well, my name is Ms. ESQ, and I spell that with an ESQ. <laughs> yeah. um, no, seriously, my name's Alyssa Fuchs. I am your legal correspondent. Esquire. Esquire. Um, and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs with an I, which is where we are broadcasting live. We're also broadcasting live on Let Your Voice Be Heard's page, I believe. No, just um, mine. No, just Stanley's page because he's special. Um, you can also leave a comment on Politically Preposterous, or you could tweet at me at Alyssa Fuchs or at Paul Preposterous on Twitter. 
And I am Jackie Cohen. I am happy to be back. It's been a few weeks. I was out, um, and we'll talk about why I was out last week in our next segment. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Jackie Cohen. That's J-A-Q-I-C-O-H-E-N. Stanley? Oh, you guys want to hear from me? No. Not All right, guys. No one cares. So, <clears throat> sorry. Um, this is Stanley Fritz, your favorite engineer on the PC ones and twos. I am currently dying of the Ebola. Um, I got it from shaking Jackie's hand, and yes. um, I'm still living though. You can find me on the Twitter at Stan Fritz, where I've been beefing with the IDC and Governor Cuomo because they don't want to include um, funding to raise the age for criminal offenders in New York State in the budget because the IDC is a joke in the Independent Democratic Caucus. Um, Alcantara will come for your seat in two years, and um, I can be found on Instagram at Stan Fritz or on Snapchat at dark skin swindle where i don't even snap i just creep through people's snaps oh okay so we have a great show lined up we're starting off the show speaking about the the huge massive uh protest that happened last sunday jackie was there uh, young jewish demonstrators they came out to protest apac support of israeli occupation and you guys you know you guys did a lot of great work i don't know if you guys made a lot of news i was looking i'm like hold on this is the big one of the biggest protests it anti- was a rumble in the jew jungle yeah i was like <laughs> hold on why isn't this headlining on fox news and on cnn right. but right so um we're gonna talk about it here on let your voice be heard and we have a very special guest who'll be calling in one of the co-founders of the If Not Now movement. That is the Jewish resistant movement, resistance movement. Um, the Jew unit. Basically, <laughs> and they are fighting for equality and safe space for Israelis and Palestinians. Yeah, freedom and so, dignity for all. Right. So we will be speaking to him after uh, in a few minutes, actually. Later on in the show, then we're going to shift to another uh, type of oppression. We're going to be talking about that social media phenomenon, black women at work. Um, I don't know if you guys are participating in the hashtag, but it was a lot of madness going on last week where two prominent black women were attacked by a white men. I know what else is new. So we're going to talk about that here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And then last but not least, Alyssa will be giving us an updated quickie on what's going on with North Carolina, their bathroom, their notorious bathroom bills, and their compromise. They're always with these notorious bathroom <laughs> bills. Yeah, I mean, this really, a compromise is sort of an understatement. I would call it more of a bait and switch. Um, but I'll get into more of that later on. Essentially, under the guise of a repeal of the awful and hideous HB2 law, there's going to be a new law, um, but it is not necessarily going to get rid of the discrimination that is going on in North Carolina against LGBTQ people. So we'll talk about that more later on in the show. Right. So we'll be talking about oppression and occupation throughout the whole entire show. Stay tuned, guys. We're going on a quick break. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back, and I'm trying to sound energetic, but I'm halfway dying because of the flu. <laughs> this is <coughs> this is let your voice be heard, and that was me coughing up along on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are wondering why I sound dead, it's because I am partially dead. Like I said, I had the flu, but no matter how dead I am, I am still charming. I am still handsome. I am still the star of the show, and when I mean the show, I mean between the space of me and my iPad, which is right in front of me. That show. I'm so happy to be trapped in a very tiny room with <clears throat> you right now. Yeah, you're oh, contagious. Yeah. This is no... how you kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> Keep, that Keep that so, over there. Keep that over there. So, guys, if you're if you're just tuning in, shout out to Antonio Adams. Shout out to um, Pedro Vinales. I went to high school with him. Funny dude. Love you. Oh, I don't love you, Pedro. That's kind of gay. Hey, what? Hey, that hey. is. Sorry. Oh, What's wrong man. with that? Yeah. What's wrong with gayness? Yeah. Actually, nothing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I love don't you, Pedro. Be, um, 
everyone who's listening, I'm sick. Forgive me. So anyways, guys, we're having a very interesting conversation today. So as you guys know, last week we kicked Jackie off the show. And because she couldn't <laughs> find something to do, she decided to go to D.C. and chill with her crew. Yeah. What crew? I was going to say that crew, but I don't want to say it because it sounds weird. So Jackie my, was... My Jew crew? I'll say my Jew well, crew. It's very much my Jew crew. You can say your Jew crew if you want to, Jackie. Yeah. I'm not anti-Semitic. All right? Uh, <laughs> so... Jokes aside, Jackie joined a group of young activists at an APAC conference. And instead of sitting here and trying to butcher the story, I'm going to let Jackie give you guys a very brief background on what that was and what she was doing. Yeah, so we went down to D.C. It was um, I was with a group called If Not Now, which is a group of young American Jews that are dedicated to ending the American support for the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. And for those that don't know, APAC is a huge conference where tons and tons of people who support, you know, many, many Jews and non-Jews, but people that support um, Israel and, and are invested in Israeli politics and um, government and industry meet together and convene. And I, I don't know, I've never actually been inside. But um, but it's very <laughs> much the belief of these young Jews that APAC and other large Jewish institutions speak on behalf of us, right? Um and I'm sure Alyssa, who's also a Jew, can agree. Um, and we went down to say, you know, we do not support the occupation. And as an institution, you do not speak for us, right? We are very tired of these large Jewish institutions speaking for us as behalf of a Jewish community. And so we went down and in a beautiful protest. It was probably one of the, I mean, I've been to a million protests in my life and rallies. This was one of the most, I think, impactful, beautiful um, protests I've ever been a part of where it was very much rooted in, you know, we in love for one another and for humanity and we were singing and dancing and, um, you know, celebrating our Jewishness while at the same time, you know, standing against firmly the occupation. In case you guys are ever wondering about PAC, one time in 2011, Jackie told me she was going to CPAC, and I thought she went to the club in Brooklyn. Yeah. Get shot. <laughs> so that's just a fun fact about PACs. But guys, in case you do not know what we're talking about, well, we mentioned the um, Israeli occupation. So if you guys must know that what happened to um, people of Jewish descent during the World War II, the Holocaust, where thousands, maybe even millions of Jews were killed millions. because... Six million. Six million Jews were killed because of the horrendous behavior and attacks of one dictator and millions of people who looked the other way because they didn't want to get involved. And because of that, that community was decimated. And after the war, many people were looking for a new home, a way to restart. And um, from from an old idea that the homeland of of Jewish people was the design of Jewish people was in a land that we currently call Palestine. A lot of them began to move over there. So now the way this sort of, this sort of started was it was just kind of unorganized. People was coming over there like, Hey, let's go back to the homeland. We won't have any problems. Well, over it started there. even before that, but I mean, we can get into it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was years before that as well, that people were looking for a Jewish homeland and, you know, this idea of Zionism as, as Israel yeah. being the homeland of the Jews is something that still is a firmly, you know, held belief to yeah. many people today. Would I be correct in saying that it really picked up after World War II? Yeah, certainly. Okay. Yeah, after the Holocaust, I think there was a there was a huge wave of Jews moving to Israel to yeah. start a new life and to declare it um, a Jewish state. However, there were many people who were not Jews that, you know, were currently living yes. there in this land who... Um, we're not happy about were that. displaced, yeah. So that brings me to my point. So, and thank you, Jackie, for clarifying that. So... They, they were coming there, especially in larger droves at the World War II. Well, who wouldn't want to leave Germany and all these other countries that pretty much looked the other way while you were being slaughtered anyway? They started coming over to what we know as Palestine. And now, a lot of the Arab, Arab Muslims who had been there for years 
kind of felt like their land was being encroached on by um, Jewish people and also by European institutions trying to, for lack of better words, gentrify their <laughs> homeland. And two big, analogy. two huge conflicts happened, one in 1948 and then one in 1967. And one of those conflicts, what happened was they realized, oh, crap, we can't just have all this kind of fighting happen. Let's try to come up with a two-state solution. That fell through because, hey, it fell through because of a lot of different reasons that I am not qualified to discuss. But in 1967, after a seven-day war, that was really kind of the nail in the coffin as far as, like, Arab Muslims having ownership or majority ownership of that land. And I think it's fair to say that's when it officially became Israel with no questions asked. Now, on the 50th anniversary of this, we'll say occupation, we're having a conversation trying to understand how do we get here, what's going on, why is Jackie over here going up against the fold, the Jewish leadership fold, and why do we need to be caring about this? And to help us with this conversation, because I am nor A, coherent enough, or B, intelligent <laughs> enough to do this, I we would have agree with both of those Yona things. Lieberman. He's a community organizer. He's currently working for If Not Now, which is a Jewish movement to end the American Jewish community support for the occupation and gain freedom and dignity for all Israelis and Palestinians. It is also helping to lead the Jewish resistance against the Trump administration. So if they are fighting Donald Trump, I like them automatically. And instead of just talking about him, I'm going to introduce him. So, Yona, thank you so much for calling in today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Yona. So, Yona, before we even get to the conversation about the Jewish occupation, because I do want you to explain it again, but in a coherent fashion, <laughs> um, I, I want talk, to talk a little bit about what the hell is If Not Now? Because as someone who... I know Black Lives Matter, I know NAACP, I know Urban League, I don't know If Not Now. So please educate us and the listeners on what If Not Now is. Great. Uh, well, yeah, thanks again for having me on. Um, love that uh, Jackie was able to make it with us to D.C. Um, so uh, If Not Now is a uh, movement that actually started in 2014 um, during the war on Gaza. Um, it was the third war on Gaza in six years. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, our members, um, a lot of the young Jews, were really angry and frustrated um, and felt like this was the final uh, straw and kind of demonstrated um, that the status quo of endless occupation um, was totally unsustainable. Um, and we're also watching a lot of the American Jewish establishment um, coming together to support the war unconditionally, saying that the, the war was justified. And while there were literally thousands of Palestinians being killed um, in a war that was um, totally uh, indefensible, um, you know, every single American Jewish institution was saying this was justified, this was the right thing to do. So uh, it actually started in New York City, um, right here, um, and uh, we started organizing um, demonstrations to mourn the lives of both Palestinians and Israelis that were being killed in the war. Um, and it was a really unique uh, situation where there, are, there weren't that many organizations that were doing that. Um, in fact, there were not, that's why we started doing it. Um, and uh, it started in New York City, um, and then within a week, um, it was spread to about a dozen cities across the country, um, and there were all these different cities that were doing these actions, mourning the lives um, of, of Israelis and Palestinians, um, and, and saying the war on Gaza is, is unjust, and our community's support for the war um, is totally unfounded and goes against every single moral value that we've been taught. Um, and it's actually kind of an interesting story because um, it was a little mini Jewish occupied moment, if I, I say it sometimes, um, where, you know, out of nowhere, um, all these young Jews are kind of in the streets demanding moral action, taking direct action. It was a really beautiful thing. Um, 
And then uh, kind of that was in the fall of 2014 was when I kind of things started fizzling out. Um, and then this is where it kind of gets interesting. Um, actually, a small group of people um, said, we don't want this to become another kind of small nonprofit or another like fringe activist group. What, are we, what can we do that can make a difference? Um, and we actually got introduced to um, leaders of um, the different millennial-led social movements that were um, kind of emerging, um, like Black Lives Matter, like the climate justice movement, like the immigrant rights movement, um, like Occupy, like the global justice movement. Um, all these kind of movements kind of coming together um, in a kind of a training institute that's called Momentum. Um, and, we, and we became like the Jewish folks there. Um, and it was really beautiful. Thank you so much for that. So they, so pretty much they became the, the Captain America moment. Black Lives Matter, if not now, a million hoodies, all these great organizations came together and made the powerful social justice warrior is what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, just, but the just good to, kind. Yeah, but now I, I want to I wanna kind of change the conversation a little bit because I do want to open it up to the panel and a bunch of people who are listening on Facebook Live. You call what's happening um, in Israel, and, and I would agree with you, an occupation. Can you give us three clear examples of why this is an occupation and why it's wrong? Great. Um, it, it's really easy for me to do this because I actually was uh, there last week, um, uh, right before uh, being uh, at the APEC demonstration. Um, I was in Israel-Palestine. Um, and I'll give you, I'll give you, what, you know, the clearest example um, is the way that the Israeli government is expanding settlements um, in the West Bank and literally stealing uh, Palestinian land um, and uh, to create uh, like homes for Jewish folks. Um, and so there's a you know in the news right now um, there's a very famous kind of uh, it's a really big deal right now because Israel has actually approved the first ever new settlement. Um, like brand new kind of like what they call neighborhoods, but it's actually a settlement um, in the West Bank. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, I, was, I spent time in uh, Hebron, um, which is uh, a historical city that is kind of, you know, where, uh, you know, they say Abraham, Isaac, um, Sarah, Rebecca, all those kind of um, matriarchs and patriarchs uh, are buried. Um, and uh, the Jewish community, um, which is about, you know, 300 people in Hebron, um, uh, has basically shut down the center of the city um, for Palestinians. It's the largest Palestinian city in the middle of the West Bank, basically. Um, and they have basically uh, shut down the entire um, uh, kind of central hub of the city um, in order to make room for Jewish settlement. Wow. That, wow. So... So they shut down an entire city. So uh, this is some pretty deep and big information. I do want to make sure we're letting everyone have their voices heard. So I'm going to throw it to Jackie first. Well, I think Alyssa actually wanted to make a point before I did. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that the thing that I really wanted to say, which I think is important and part of this conversation, is just about the situation generally in Israel, that it is complex, that there are a lot of things coming into play about it and that we cannot forget some of the complexities when we have the conversation, but also just to say generally that there's a difference between anti-Semitism and, you know, being critical of Israel. And I think all too often people conflate these things as you can't take two positions, right, or that you are a hypocrite. And I think one of the big important things to remember throughout this conversation just generally is that you can be... Um, pro-Jew, and you can be, you know, against anti-Semitism, and you can also be pro-Palestine, and you can be against the occupation, um, and that those things can be 
held together at the same time and that they're not mutually exclusive, that you don't have to take one position or another. Because I think so many people think that they have to be boxed in to either, oh, you're a Zionist or, oh, you're in favor of Palestine. And the fact of the matter is, is those things can coexist and they need to coexist in order for us to move forward about how to solve these problems. You're right. But for a long time, it felt like if you had any criticism towards Israel, you were anti-Semite. And and that's why I think it's so important that young Jews are the face of, of, if not now, right? And that's why, and because we're speaking, how are you going to refer to this group of, you know, a thousand Jews that showed up in D.C. Um, and say that they're all anti-Semites? I mean, we were singing in Hebrew. We're singing a song in Hebrew called We Will Build the World with Love. Like, you cannot <laughs> label it, although it happened, right? It, it has happened. I mean, I have been called anti-Semitic for my views, for even criticizing Israel, right? Um, and I was certainly called, um, there were um, Jewish Defense League protesters protesting us at our um at outside of APAC last weekend who are referring to us as Nazis and saying that we were anti-Semitic and wow. saying lots of other really wonderful wonderful things about our group but at the end of the day it, it's important and I, I know Yona can speak on this too but I think we have a caller first um it's so critically important, I think, for our community as Jews to be able to separate anti-Semitism and being even critical of Israel, right? You you are not anti-Semitic to even criticize Israel. Well, I know we have our caller, but I'm going to shuffle things a bit, Jackie, because you just said a couple of things here that I want to unpack. You talked about how there were other Jewish people calling you a Nazi and things yeah, like that. Yeah, but they were like an extremist hate group. But how did that make you feel? That couldn't have felt good. Uh, no, it did not feel good. Let's talk I mean, about <laughs> that. Like, seriously, because these are these are your own people. Yeah, I mean, I don't consider the Jewish Defense League my own people. They are a extremist hate group. Um, I think they were deemed a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, they were like brutally attacking people at our protest. Um, I believe they beat up um, a Palestinian man who was walking through. Um, and so I definitely do not consider them my own people, but I have been called anti-Semitic um, by people that I have been close to for even criticizing Israel, right? I, I am not anti-Israel. I am not, you know, I am anti-occupation, but to even criticize Israel and then be called an anti-Semite, definitely, I mean, I am a Jew. I'm a proud Jew, right? I talk about my Jewish identity all the time and to be told that actually I'm not Jewish and I hate Jews because I'm critical of another institution. I mean, I consider myself an American, but I talk about my disdain for Trump all the time, right? right? And I don't get called anti-American. So I think it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, you do. You know, I'm sure by somebody. That's a really good point, Jackie. So we're going on a quick break. When we get back, we have callers, we have questions, we have comments, we have a packed show. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz with Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and Jackie Cohen. And we are talking about the... Israeli occupation of Palestine and the activist work being done by some young Jewish activists from If Not Now. We have Yona Silverman on the line. Yona Lieberman. Sorry. Wow, wow. Stanley. I'm thinking about my friend Isaac, if that helps any. <laughs> oh, what? Oh, so all black people look the same? Yeah, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> so we, we're talking to Yona Lieberman. I'm sorry, Lieberman. Um, Yona Lieberman, who is um, an organizer for If Not Now and who's been helping us understand a lot of what's going on right now. And we have a lot of callers and questions, so we want to get to the caller who's been waiting for a while. Ken Roy Charrington, please let your voice be heard. 
thanks, PC. Guys, I want to say this. I'm, I'm pro-Israel and, and, and for the Palestinians. Uh, first with Israel and, you know, uh, not being anti-Semitic. Jewish people have political power in the U.S. and they financially contribute to elected officials, so elected officials have to watch their tongues. Um, but for now, the Israelis got to stop with settling. But right now, what I mean is this. Right now, you already have beef with Palestine, but you can, and, and you're not making matters easier by continuing to occupy land that you feel that it's yours. As for the Palestinians, they got to stop with the terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah. They're not making the situation either uh, either better. And uh, not, not, only that, not, not only does Hamas and Hezbollah are a terrorist group that have beef with Israel, but they also have a beef with the United States. And also, from what I gather, I could be wrong, they give money to the Taliban. So both sides got to... You know, Obama was, Obama was right that Israel has to give up some of its land, but, and I can understand why Sharon was mad, which he should not have blasted Obama at Obama's own house. Thank you very much for your comments, Kenway. He made a lot of really good comments and some interesting ones as well. He said that um, Israel, you know, should be giving up some, some of their land, and he also said that Palestine should be willing to negotiate and they shouldn't be dealing with Hamas and as well as... He's mentioned that they have donated to the Taliban. I'm not sure if that's true. He also mentioned that a lot of people people in the Jewish community with money are donating to politicians, and because of that, they can control the narrative, so to speak. And that really makes me want to talk about Trump and bring Yona back into the conversation. So, Yona, Ken, one of the first things that Ken White mentioned was just about the ability for a lot of um, the people in, in the establishment, the pro-Israel establishment, to control the conversation because of the amount of money they, they put into the pockets of politicians how has that played out in Trump's administration so far, or will it play out, play out at all? It's an interesting question. I, I think that, um, honestly, I think that we're a little bit going to have to uh, wait to see how that specific piece plays out, right? Um, but we, we do know one thing, um, that the American Jewish community, um, or the establishment, rather, has been pretty silent, actually, on most of the worst of Trump's policies. Um, and the establishment... Um, has, has, you know, specifically, you know, the, the, the biggest example that if I now was organizing around was um, the appointment of Stephen Bannon to be chief strategist. Um, Stephen Bannon, racist, um, white nationalist, uh, anti-Semite, um, who was appointed chief strategist. Um, and the Jewish establishment, um, instead of saying, wow, there's an actual Nazi in the White House, maybe we should do something about it, was totally silent. And the reason why is because they don't want to uh, kind of disrupt their relationship with the Trump administration uh, in order to make sure that the Trump administration continues decades of U.S. policy, which is supporting the occupation unconditionally. That sounds horrible and egregious, just, just to be frank. And Benjamin Netanyahu has actually almost seen just thirstily excited to have Trump in the White House. Right. I just wanted to mention that. Alyssa, I know we had some comments on our line. Please read those from Facebook Live. Yeah, we do. So basically, Matthew Glum says, it's uh, to my earlier comment, it's like being anti-government but loving your country, that you can hold these two ideas in mind at right. the same time. Um, I, I also wanted to add, though, um, to some of the points that Kenroy made and, and some of the points that our guests just made, which is, um, number one, I had spoke about Steve Bannon and why Steve Bannon is interested in Israel on a couple of shows back. You should check that out. And his whole, like, end of the 
world, like biblical theory of how the world's going to end and why it's important to him, you know, to have this interest in Israel having nothing to do with with Jewish people, because I honestly believe Steve Bannon is anti-Semitic. I mean, he notoriously said he wasn't going to send his kids to school with Jews. It doesn't get more anti-Semitic than that. To Kenroy's point, I think that's a great point that, you know, both sides need to recognize that everybody has a little bit of um, guilt in this and that nobody's an innocent party. I mean, I had the opportunity to go to Israel back in 2012 and I got to go to Jericho, which is in the West Bank. Um, And we were able to cross into Jericho as a tour bus full of American Jewish. um, I want to say wants to say teenagers. We weren't teenagers. We were, you know, in our 20s um, with no problems. Meanwhile, I have a friend of mine um, whose name I won't mention on the radio, but who went to go visit family of hers that live in the West Bank in Ramallah and who is a lawyer. And she actually got detained trying to enter into the West Bank and then deported because Israel would not let her go see her family. So there obviously are faults, um, which goes to my last point, which is just like you don't blame all Americans for things that George Bush did that you disagree with. You don't need to blame all Israeli, sorry, all Israelis for things that Bibi Netanyahu does. I'm going to push back for a second. We don't agree with. I'm going to push back for a second. Can you really blame the oppressed for their actions that influenced by an oppressor? No, 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 that's not what I said. No, but you said like both sides have their wrongs. So like my question is, can you like and I, I would agree that there's been some bad things on the other side as well. But can you really blame the oppressed for their behavior like in reaction to the oppressor? No, you can't blame the oppressed for their behavior to a certain extent. But yes, you can blame the oppressed for certain types of violence and incitement and things that as human beings are not right to do. Right. So there's a way to push back against oppression that is nonviolent. As we know, there's obviously violent ways to push back against oppression. And there's things that you don't just don't do, like killing children and stuff I, like that. I so you have to join the lot, you know, well, push back. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I just don't think it's ever OK so for somebody wanna, to run and stab somebody simply wanna, because they're Jewish or you're Selena. unhappy. I want to Selena, but I, I, I still push back on that because I don't think it's appropriate to tell the it's appropriate oppressed just run around and knife people, Stanley. So, so I'll throw it to Selena, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy to hold the moral high ground when when you're the ones in power here. So, like, I think and I think it's important that we acknowledge that. And I, and maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive to it because of just like where I stand on issues of Black Lives Matter, but. It's no one's going to tell me as a black person how to react to racism. Right, but you're not running around knifing police officers, so right? What? That's my point. So, but they're still it's like to, you recognize that there's a Alyssa, level of humanity Alyssa, that we don't cross. No, Alyssa, but people are still trying to police my behavior, and I don't have it as bad as a lot of people in Palestine do. So that's why I'm saying, like, we should be, like, let's think about those things when we're having that conversation. Selena. No, I mean, I I thought that was an excellent point. And you kind of, like, just took the words out of my mouth because I was just going to ask for, like, for more understanding, like, in relation to, you know, I have to, like, bring it back again to, like, you know, how to fight against racial oppression here in America. And some people say, like, hey, let's riot. Let's burn things down because we've been trying nonviolent tactics. We've tried to be as diplomatic as possible, and our people are still being shot and killed. And and, and it's really hard to tell somebody who, as we carry this legacy in our country and, and, and how we see these things repeating, it's hard to say, no, 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 let's go sign a petition. Yeah, Colin yeah. Kaepernick can't find a job right now, and all he did was kneel, Jackie. Right. Well, yeah, that right. And donate you know, millions of dollars to, to worthy charities. But yeah. I, think, I think getting back to this idea of Jews taking a stance against the occupation, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's difficult for a lot of Jews to do. And I think it was difficult for me as a Jew to do for many years. Um, 
And I think a lot of Jews, I mean, even James Baldwin wrote about this, right, about Jews that are very aware of their own oppression and it has existed and anti-Semitism is very real and the Holocaust was very real. And, you know, even systemic oppression of Jews in this country. I mean, I have never felt oppressed systemically, right, because I'm Jewish, right? And I have a very Jewish last name. I talk about being Jewish all the time. I've, I've heard anti-Semitic comments launched at me, but I've never felt like I couldn't get a job or I was being oppressed in a way that maybe my grandparents did. My great-grandparents changed their last names to one that was less Jewish sounding so that they could find work, right? Um, but so we're we as Jews are very aware of this, but that doesn't mean that our own oppression absolves us of any oppression that we are complicit in. Right. And so it's really, I think, our moral responsibility as Jews to take a look at what's happening in Israel, because at the end of the day, it does affect us. Right. Jews are being told that it is your right by birth. It's your birthright to go to Israel and live there and get to experience it. When Alyssa just mentioned, there are people who are who have family who are Palestinian, who are born in Palestine. I know I have a very good friend who was born in Palestine who cannot go back and visit his mother without being detained. So, I mean, I think that as Jews in America, we have to take a really hard look at, you know, what is our place in all of this? And do we really just want to default towards just acknowledging that, you know, accepting this narrative that to be anti-Israel or critical of Israel is anti-Semitic? I mean, I, I, I'm tired of that. Thank you very much. And I want to bring Yona back into the conversation because, Yona, we've we've had some very difficult and challenging just debates here in the last three to five minutes. <laughs> How the hell do you put all this stuff together and find a solution? And if there is a solution, what is it? How do we move forward in a space that cares for and protects both Jewish people and Arab Muslims and Palestinian people? Realize that uh, all people deserve freedom and dignity for all, right? Um, and that, that's, that's kind of at the end of the day, that's what Ithan now is working towards. There's a situation where Palestinians and Israelis come with freedom and dignity. Um, and uh, a lot of people will say that um, Palestinians have dignity, or a lot of people will say, well, Israelis have freedom, you know? Um, and, and actually, what we're trying to say is that actually, uh, administering the occupation is dehumanizing the Israeli people. And living under the occupation is a daily nightmare for the Palestinians. And it doesn't, we're not, we don't need to play oppression Olympics in order to say that this is that the occupation is a moral travesty and we need to fight against it, right? Um, and just to kind of hit on, on, on another point that, that is kind of being brought up, but it's like the idea that, that um, the American Jewish community is supporting the occupation is actually a really big reason why um, the American Jewish community can't find the, a way to align itself with the other marginalized folks in, this, in America. Um, it's actually getting in the way of us being able to say we actually stand arm in arm with black folks, with immigrants, with Muslims, um, with, with trans people, right? Um, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a wedge that's being used um, by kind of, uh, by, by many people to kind of stop us from actually aligning, aligning ourselves with our natural allies, which are other marginalized people in this country. And especially in the Trump administration, um, we need to realize that we need to kind of come together with all the people who are going to be uh, going to be targeted um, by the Trump administration, and it's and it is true that the, that Jews are being targeted um, in this moment. There's a rise of anti-Semitism, right? And it's not a coincidence that it has to do with with the rise of Trump. Um, and so, if we as Jews in America are going to be safe, we need to be align ourselves. Um, not with Trump, and and not which is what the establishment is doing, right? Not with Trump in order to support Israel, but with other marginalized people who are being targeted um, by systems in order to ensure that we can all like get free together. Yona, that was beautiful and a well said comment. I thank you very much for that. So we we do have to let you go, but before we do, please let our listeners know how they can get involved or support. If not now. 
Amazing. So you can go to uh, our website at ifnotnowmovement.org, um, and you should uh, keep your eyes and ears open uh, for uh, a national day of action that we're doing to follow up on uh, the APAC uh, demonstration, uh, which is happening this Thursday, April 6th. It's going to be uh, really awesome. You can follow along uh, with the hashtag 50 days, 50 years. Thank you very much again for calling in today, Yona. Thank you very much for educating for us. Me. Thank and you. And thank you for the work that you do. So, guys, this is a hot topic. So um, I, I let Yona off a couple of minutes early so that we could have a chance to kind of decompress and give our final thoughts. I want to start with um, Selena. Sure. And then we'll go through Selena, Lisa, Jackie, and me. Yeah, so, you know, uh, following the anti-APAC uh, protest that happened, and, and I know that this is, <coughs> if not now, was definitely not the first uh, young right. Jewish organization to protest APAC, which we know historically like leans right, even though they claim to be bipartisan, bipartisan right. um, and they invite Democrats to speak at their conferences every year. Nancy Pelosi spoke this year. Um, I think that there's a dissonance when it comes to how young Jewish, maybe progressive millennial Americans feel like Jackie and Alyssa and how older Jewish leadership feels. And the thing that I really wanted to understand is it's pretty much like that disconnect because it seems like you guys can sympathize and do empathize with Palestinian oppression, even as an oppressed people. And I think that when we call ourselves allies, right, whether we're talking about immigration reform or LGBT issues, if you're going to be an ally, you need to acknowledge that oppression is wrong, no matter who mm -hmm. it comes from and where it comes from. And, like, even as myself, like, we, like, I, as a Christian person, I go to a Christian faith, I mean, a Christian church, but I can still say that LGBT oppression is wrong and for, the, right. for these reasons. And it can be, it can be hard for me, even with my community, especially, <laughs> like, in, going to an all-black church. But I, I feel like we have we need to get to that place as progressives to say that this is wrong and this is why and this is why I am aligning myself with this movement. And I commend you two both for, you know, taking that stance and, and speaking out even against your own families. Listen, I mean, I think it's a it's a really difficult issue. But I, the one thing I will say is, yeah, I mean, you can't be. Um, sit here and say that you're against the oppression of peoples, especially, and say Black Lives Matter, and say that you're, you know, pro-LGBT rights, and not stand up and say that the occupation of these lands is wrong. Um, at the same time, you still be able, need to be able to acknowledge that, like, Israel has the right to exist, and Jewish people have historically um, been killed, and also have the right to a, to a homeland in a certain way. That said, I think the most important thing for me is, like, I find it embarrassing, embarrassing, as a Jew, as an American Jew, and as a liberal, um, that this is going on, and that more Israelis, and there are a certain number of left-wing Israelis that are standing up to Bibi Netanyahu, um, just like, you know, we George Bush didn't represent everybody in America, Bibi doesn't represent everybody in Israel. That said, I think it's embarrassing that Jewish people who spent years living in ghettos that they were put into by the Nazis, that were then put into concentration camps, were subjected to horrible treatment and enslavement and death at the hands of the Nazis will then turn around and essentially occupy the lands of another people. And I recognize that the situation is politically fraught and it's complicated and there's a lot more going into it. But I think as a Jew, it embarrasses me. And I, you know, and I do not stand with this because I do not feel that this is the way Jewish people should be treating other people, especially given the history of how Jewish people have been treated historically. Yeah. I mean, I, I echo all of that. And I think that Yona brought up a great point about Steve Bannon. I mean, 
not only have major Jewish institutions not spoken out against Steve Bannon, um, but they've even supported him, right? Um, so something that was, I think, a really great protest that, if not now, organized and helped organize with several other um, Jewish organizations was a protest outside the Zionist Organization of America's annual gala. Zionist Organization of America invited Steve Bannon to come and speak at their event, right? So not only are they not admonishing him as the pick to the Trump administration, but they are inviting him as a guest of honor to come speak. So we as Jews cannot depend on our Jewish institutions to do the right thing in our best interests and in the best interests of others, right? And so I think that it's more important than ever that we as young Jews recognize that this oppression exists and that we can be as Jews complicit in that or we can speak out against it and actively work to end it. And so I I feel I you know more sure of my place in this than anything else that as a Jew I know what my voice needs to be. I know that, you know that I must speak out against oppression and that you know it I just because we as Jews have suffered from oppression does not mean that we cannot be oppressors. And it's very, as soon as we forget that, um, we find ourselves in really dangerous territory. Thank you very much for that, Jackie. So um, I want to thank everyone in the If Not Now movement who's doing the work that they're doing. It is important work that, that's happening here. Uh, I want to push back just a little bit on something I've heard from a lot of people um, in the studio, outside of the studio, all over the place. This is not a complicated situation at all. There's an occupation going on. Land is being expanded on that isn't theirs, and people are being held in the open-air prison, as described by the UN, and that needs to stop. It's, it's really as simple as that. Millions of people do not agree with this, but the powers that be, or the, the, the Jewish political establishment, continues to perpetuate this injustice, and that that power establishment needs to be removed, or they need to change their ways. And I really commend the people in the If Not Now movement who are fighting on behalf of our Palestinian sisters and brothers, and also on behalf of our Israeli and Jewish sisters and brothers, because the the the, the wanted needs of a few rich racist white men and a handful of women is right now controlling an entire country and it's not reflecting what the people want or what's on the right side of justice and until we do something about that then we will always be a world of oppressors and united states of america which currently gives israel billions of dollars every single year will be the financers of oppressors but i guess that's not very new because america is very good at oppressing so if you want a solution stop the occupation not complicated with that being said, we're going on a quick break. When we come back, it'll be the news roundup. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem, where Stanley Fritz is suffering from the flu. But like Jordan, he still came back in the oh. last inning. Boom, right? In, in <laughs> the inning, Hold on. Are, are we talking about when oh, Jordan played basketball? I meant basketball. I um, meant the last the quarter. Last quarter. Fully appreciate that. Like I, 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 he I, did I, play baseball. Wait, wait, wait. So this is almost as good as when. Wait, well, which politician who was running for office and called it the basketball ring? <laughs> Who's oh, that was Ted Cruz. Oh, right, right, The basketball ring. The basketball ring. So right. now Selena thinks that there are innings in basketball. No, I, no, I forgot their quarters, guys. Do not even try to que- like question me on sports. It's not my realm of expertise. You and I'll and let you guys. 
my so, boyfriend to talk know, about sports. He asked if the Mets were going to win the Super Bowl. Speaking of sports, yeah. um, so I have a really good news story. Hold that on. I love. So we are actually in the news roundup portion where we share our favorite news stories of the week, the ones we love, the ones we hated, and of course you can let your voice call. You can let your voice be heard. The number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Alyssa. Okay. So my favorite story this week is a guy in Iowa pled guilty to a disorderly conduct and got fined $65 for throwing tomatoes at Donald Trump yep. at a Trump rally. Um, and I think $65, uh, now, uh, as a, a lawyer, I am not telling you to go out and throw tomatoes at Donald Trump. That is illegal. You should not do that. But I will say, I think $65 is a pretty good price to pay to throw some tomatoes at Donald Trump. What Definitely. About, what do you think? I think so. I mean, if it would have hit him, then the consequences would have been more severe. Well, you know, that actually speaks to a separate point that That's a lot of people were getting at, which is white privilege. Because this guy was white, and he only got fined $65 and pled guilty to a disorderly conduct which is not a crime and a lot of people have said if he was a black man like the secret service would have shot him for throwing tomatoes at donald trump so i think that you know on one hand i think it's very funny that this guy had to pay 65 dollars for throwing the tomatoes on the other hand i do think that that is a good point that you know this is another example of how privilege comes into play in the criminal justice system and we shouldn't overlook that no remember when an iraqi journalist threw his shoes at at george George bush Bush, Bush, yeah there was like a gift going around of that and it made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I am in full support of people that throw things at presidents I don't like. But like Alyssa said, you probably shouldn't do that. Because it's illegal. Right. So Serena it's is illegal. not telling you to do that. <laughs> no, I'm not. She yeah. just supports you. She'll donate to your GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, to get She'll you. bail you out. Definitely. I will definitely try to bail you out. So speaking of the criminal justice system, last week, if you were listening to Let Your Voice Be Heard, we had an in-depth conversation about the closed Rikers campaign mm-hmm. featuring one of the leading activists, Darren Mack. And it turns out that New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has vowed to close Rikers down. It is trending all over Twitter right now in a couple of different tweets. And people are talking about not only that, but also Khalif Broder. We know who was a young man, excuse me, a young boy who's 16 or 17 years old when he was locked up in Rikers for years. And because of that mental and psychological trauma, he ended up committing suicide. So we are finally closing down this institution that has produced so many Khalif Broders. Well, let me say something about that. Because one, the proposal is for the jail to close within the next 10 years. So this is not something that's going to happen automatically. And number two, and I'm just going to come out and say it. Honestly, I think this is a political plot because Bill de Blasio is running for office and I will believe it when I see it, but I'm not going to hold my breath because he can stand up there and get on board with this because it's now politically good for him to get on board with this proposal because there's movement here and because he wants these votes. But at the end of the day, we actually have to see action because he ran for mayor on this platform of police reform and yet we have seen very little in terms of actual police reform. So there's a lot of talk, but until that talk materializes into action, as far as I'm concerned, like, I don't know. I just don't trust him. Yeah, and, and we should be clear that this is over a 10-year period, and it is going to create five jails for the five boroughs. It doesn't address the issue of the prison industrial, comp- the prison industrial complex at all. It doesn't address the issue it of putting— It doesn't raise the age. Yeah, it doesn't raise the age. So if you guys don't know, New York State and North Carolina are the only two states where a 16- or a 17-year-old can go to an adult prison. And in New York State, you can arrest someone as young as seven years old. Yeah, I mean, I, I cannot reiterate enough how much I think 
Rikers needs to close. And for further proof of why that needs to happen, you should listen to last week's show. Um, but I do think, you know, I heard somebody say, okay, yeah, like Rikers will close when Guantanamo does. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, I understand the Seriously. skepticism. Like, I think that that's, it's, we, you know, it's great that this is the plan, but we need to hold, I mean, the mayor will not be the mayor by the time the, um, you know, Rikers yeah. is supposed to close. So we need to hold whomever's in power accountable to actually making sure that this happens. And in a way that doesn't have an even worse effect, right? That we're not just building more jails to put people in, right? You can't just close Rikers and not raise the age of, um, you know, right. who we're players. sending to these jails, right? You should not be putting 16 and 17 year olds in jail. Absolutely. And I mean, it's still a step in the right direction. Yeah. And it's something, it's a small victory that deserves to be celebrated because these activists, especially Close Rikers campaign, which is led with his, which is led by Glenn Martin, they've been doing so much to get this far. Yeah, just make sure that the, the, the facilities are not as poor as Rikers were, where you had worms coming out of the shower holes and you didn't have central cooling or heat, so people would be freezing and boiling to death. I mean, you got way more problems than that at Rikers. Yeah, obviously. But, like, let's make sure, like, that we're not going to be having those same problems because if you do, what was the point? Right. I mean, listen, in terms of the proposal to, for the community jails, a lot of people don't realize there already are three community jails. Um, there's one in Brooklyn. There's one in Manhattan. There's one in the Bronx. There is not one in Queens anymore. The biggest positive portion of this proposal is that when people are locked up, it's very difficult for their families to get out and see them on Rikers Island. It takes a whole day. It's hard for your lawyer to get out and see you. It's hard for you to have contact. It's a it's a process. So when you put people back into the community, they're close to home. Their families can come visit them. At the same time, we still need to be doing everything we can to reduce the prison population. As we acknowledged last week, there's always going to be a small subset of people that are just dangerous and have to be locked up. So we need to do two things. We need to close Rikers. We need to have these communities facilities so that people who do need to be locked up are at least close to their friends and close to their family and close to the courthouses and then b we also need to figure out how to reduce the number of people that are in jail that don't need to be there awaiting trial um, and bail reform and criminal justice reform generally so there's a lot that needs to happen aside from just closing rikers so we you know we yes it's a victory once it happens of course but it's not it's it's like a small victory in this larger battle right. that we have to keep Fo the focus on all of these issues it's in not the criminal the end justice system. No, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's and definitely how not. many people, I read that 80% of all people in Rikers have yet to be that's um, true. Charged with a, or they've been charged, but they have not been convicted right. of a crime. So yeah. the majority of people that 80%. are currently on Rikers are awaiting trial. And that also speaks to bail reform, which I mentioned last week. There are yeah. eight different types of bail on the books, including five types of bail that don't require you to actually put up any money, where you can have a personal recognizance bond, or you can put up your house or some sort of collateral if you don't show up, or have family members sign off for you, um, just like they do in the federal system, where they put together what's called a quote-unquote bail package, and yet judges predominantly use only three types of bail, cash, bond, and now credit card, which are the three hardest types of bail for people to meet in some circumstances. I mean, like, they can set $500 bail on you, which sounds reasonable, but if you don't have a pot to piss in yep. for what it's worth, like, and you don't have $5, then you're not going to be able to make $500 bail. It's basically the same as giving you $100,000 worth of bail. So yeah. we need to rethink that system. There are some groups that have popped up, like the Brooklyn Bail Fund, mm -hmm. that help people make bail if it's, like, under $1,000. But we need more non-for-profits like that. 
that and we also need to you know like we have to fix the bail system like i said not just reform the system because these laws are already on the books what we need to do is we need to sit judges down and have conversations with judges about how they should be employing some of these other forms of bail and judges obviously have political a a big part of that is that judges in new york city are elected they're not appointed and so judges have to worry about or certain judges are elected not appointed and so judges have to worry about if i set don't set bail on this person and this person gets out and then kill somebody like the guy who ran over the EMT worker oh. um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. He had been released um, on his own recognizance previously by a judge who didn't because the other thing is New York doesn't look at public safety when we're making a bail decision. That's written into our New York State Criminal Code is that we don't base bail on public safety. We base bail on whether or not you're going to come back to court and what, that's the right. only fact. That's one of the main factors. So there's a lot of things. This is, I know you like to say th- some things seem simpler. This is complicated. Um, but you know, there's definitely stuff that can be done. And if you want more information about that, I would say get in touch with me via Facebook because I do a lot of activist work like that. I'm glad to point you in the right direction on organizations you can join and ways you can get involved in this issue. Definitely. And guys, if you want to call in, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. You can tweet us at beheard underscore radio just to keep the ball moving and to switch gears in a complete in a complete 180. So I don't know if you guys have been following Black China and the Rob Kardashian fiasco. I think Stanley has because he loves Ratchet News. So um, we know that I think they had like a little breakup, but they got back together. But Kim Kardashian, Khloe Kardashian, and Kourtney Kardashian have succeeded in blocking Black China's uh, petition to use the name Angela Renee Kardashian, which is her daughter's name, in business dealings. So Black China cannot... Poor child. (laughs) I know, right? Well, Black China wanted to, you know, use the name so that she can continue to profit off the Kardashians, and it looks like she will not be able to do that, even if she marries Rob. And I think that they probably will get married because they'll make a good sitcom. So we'll I mean, continue to watch that. I don't understand that. why they're blocking her. These white women have have built their finances off of black men. Right. So why can't a black woman make some money off of them? I mean, I think there's a difference. There's a there's a huge difference. Well, what's in the that. difference? I, well, okay. So you're saying because well, it's well, it's just Black China. Kim it's Kardashian got famous from a sex tape with a black guy, and then perpetuated her, well, her celebrity. And by also, wait, no, also her dad was famous because of the O.J. Simpson. Yeah, trial. but that's not what did it for her. Let's but, be honest about but that. But the thing it is, was the Ray J. sex if, tape. Is if, what you're saying. Yeah. if Black China, you're, it kind of sounds like you're, you may be saying. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but if Black China would have won this. Um, lawsuit, mm-hmm. then it would have been a win for black people. That's, no, I don't know. I don't know why you came <laughs> no, with all that. Because you're like, that, is, that is a pretty big no, lead. no. Because you're like, oh well, they profited off of black men, so why can't this black woman profit? Like off it's these two different women. things. If they if they profited off of black men, why can't a black woman get in on some of that? Because she shouldn't. Why? Because that's their name. I think this conversation <laughs> has gone over my head. Maybe we should talk about you know. This is Other dumb news, the Kardashians. Like the Kardashians have zero talent. They're good at getting butt implants hey, guys, and making emojis. Did you so know? why can't Kim, why can't um, Black China do the same thing? Yeah. Did you know that she, she, she she's just has. as useless as they are? If you ask for immunity, it means you probably committed a crime. Says Michael Flynn, man who just asked for immunity. <laughs> <Tell me more. laughs> 
you know, that aged very well, didn't it? it so when did. Hillary Clinton yeah, right. when Hillary Clinton was getting investigated um, over the email thing, which turned out to be nothing, of course, you know, but her emails, um, the Michael Flynn was like, well, if you ask for immunity, that means, you know, you probably committed a crime. Of course, now last week, Michael Flynn has come out and <laughs> literally asked, asked, literally for, asked immunity. for immunity, <laughs> which I guess means he probably committed a crime. And his lawyers are like, no, we would be bad lawyers if we didn't. Which, like, well, sure, no, that's sure, true. that's true. But, like, he did say that if you ask for immunity, you probably committed a crime, which I think I mean, those are his hysterical. words. Yeah, it, like, so from that, the horse's mouth. I mean, but here's the bitter, bigger, bitter question, which is, what does Michael Flynn know? So normally when somebody's asking for immunity, it's because they have information on somebody who's higher up. Well, there's only one person who's higher up in this situation. Who is it, Selena? Come on. Kim Kardashian. <laughs> the Cheeto. <laughs> Cheeto flavored. Really? Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, man, I thought you knew that one. Uh, I'm sorry. This I'm was sorry. not a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, it was too easy. It, it was, was too easy. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're you're overthinking it. Say that's it. slightly embarrassing, Selena. No, it was, it, was, it was too easy. Sorry. Do you, wanna, do you have anything to say about this? Well, no, yes, I do. Well, Nikki. White privilege, maybe? More well, white. no, it's not more a privilege. It's just like people who are embezzling the country. I don't really care about Mike Flynn asking for um, immunity. I'm not surprised about that. What disgusts me is the Republican Party, who is pretty much going to do everything they can to protect Donald Trump. If what? you're wondering why we still care about this, it's because you're looking at a situation in which the person who won the presidential election may have colluded with our biggest rivals to win it and may possibly be giving them like very secretive or important information, which means they are compromising the safety of not just the U.S. government's like personal information, but of your personal safety. And for what? So a corny orange man can be president and not get anything done except for stripping all the things that we have put into place to protect poor people. Well, I would say some Republicans have been speaking out. Do they need to do more? Yes. Like and do they? Well, Nikki Haley. John McCain. <laughs> Nikki Haley has not spoken out. She's yes, she, on his administration. Well, she says, I think Russia was deaf. She says, certainly, I think Russia was involved in the election. There's no question about that. You don't that. get points for that. It's been proven. Like, well, she's, she's just stating a fact, Selena. That's no, no, no. But up. the thing is, it's. But it's better than trying to protect him. No, and it's, it's not. better is, than. Is that the bar we're at now? Oh, they acknowledge a fact. <laughs> Wait, is that remember, really the bar? It, it kind of is. Just it kind of is. The just bar. a few weeks ago, the bar was he sounded presidential, right? And we were sitting here going. Um, so when did the bar get so low that if you sound presidential, then, you know, that means you're doing a decent job. I mean, Stanley sounds presidential from time to time, but Stanley's not the president. So here's something that's interesting, right? So we found out this week that the Koch brothers were offering millions of dollars to members of Congress if they voted against Trump's health care bill. Right. And as we know, it failed. And so I think that that's interesting to think about, like, who holds the, you know, whoever, it's not so much like who holds the power versus who holds the purse strings, right? Because at the end of the day, members of Congress want to be reelected. So no matter what, I mean, it's nefarious any way you slice it, right? But if the Koch brothers are the ones offering millions of dollars in funding to campaigns, to members of the House, um, in in return for stepping away from the, I mean, I it's like this weird space where like the Koch brothers they have so much power but they're able to draw power away from the president which uh, you know gut reaction is like oh good like maybe they'll say impeach him and that's great but as we know their intentions money are talks, not doesn't it yeah money talks right follow the money that's where you know that's where people's allegiances lie right not for good of country or whatever but I mean that will be if anything the the way that Republicans 
distance themselves, I think, from Trump is through other nefarious means. Definitely. So, guys, if you do want to chime in, you can continue to call us up. You can continue to tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. Our phone number is 212-650-6903. Again, that's 212-650-6903. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll be speaking about black women at work, the phenomenon, the hashtag, and just the sad reality. All right, guys, so we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohen, and Stanley Fritz. And, of course, you guys who are listening, we appreciate the calls, the comments, so keep them coming. You can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. You can also call us up at 212-650-6903. So I wanted to start this half of the show off with a little story story, right? So I remember when I was interning for a mainstream AM radio station. It was conservative at the time. Um, we used to syndicate Glenn Beck. That's just to give wow, you just to so give weird. you an idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Interesting. You, yeah. So um I was interning there, and while I was there, I was, like, in my early 20s. I had already graduated college, and I was speaking to a colleague of mine, a white man. And I, as I was talking about an apple, he abruptly interrupted me to point out that I mistakenly said a apple instead of an apple. And then he brought up the fact that he has to frequently correct a woman named Rosa, whose first language was not English, as a comparison. So this experience to me was it was pretty demoralizing yeah. i mean it's obvious my first language is english it's obvious i have a college degree it's obvious that i'm smart enough to know the difference between a apple and an apple but and that's the reason why i was there but for some reason it was like this man this white man had a he felt it was his duty his mandate to correct the way black and brown people spoke and uh, it's just something that I thought was pretty ridiculous because if he would have said it, I would have just thought it was something like I would not think that he didn't know the difference, mm -hmm. but he wanted to explain that to me. I listened. Um, and even though he was patroni uh, patronizing, it reminded me that as a person of color, particularly as a black woman, I have no room for error. Um, I'm constantly being critiqued for rather than just the contributions of to a company. I get critiqued. Uh, uh, I get um, critiqued for the way I speak, the way my hair looks, the way I dress. It's just a whole big thing, and it just reminded me also what my mom told me. Like Selena, you need to be twice as good as Becky with the good hair. Mm -hmm. Literally, something that I will never forget. It's probably because she still tells me that. But um, I say that to say. When I found out about the phenomenon black women at work, which was a viral hashtag, of course I could relate. Uh, just to bring everyone up to speed, black women at work is a hashtag that went viral a few days ago when two prominent black women were attacked by white men on the job on the very same day. First, it was Bill O'Reilly, uh, who's a commentator, actually a host on Fox News. He mocked. Congresswoman Maxine Waters' appearance on his show saying, and I quote, I didn't hear a word she said. I was looking at the James Brown wig. Oh, 
If we have a picture of James, it's the same wig. And FYI, James Brown did not wear a wig. Like, he was known for his hair. And also, FYI, the president's hair is way worse. So maybe Bill (laughs) Riley should start mocking whatever that rat's nest is on top of Cheeto's head. Yeah, but the thing is, it wasn't even appropriate for the conversation. Like, Donald Trump has made fun of his own hair, right? Maxine Waters is a well-respected representative of California that fights for undeserved uh, communities and stands up and she's also for job creation I mean her contributions to our country are immeasurable and to somehow dismiss her and belittle her to her hair is something that black women continually go through so then that happened I will say that Bill O'Reilly apologized um, and he said he was just making jests about her hair which was dumb I apologize okay same day White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, he reprimands veteran White House reporter April Ryan, telling her, and I quote, stop shaking your head. I'm like, who speaks to an adult in that manner in that way? Men. Men do. (laughs) Yeah, men do. Right. I I just, it it, it was just, it it was just, it was just sickening. Um, And it moved black women across the country to share their stories about discrimination, racism, sexism, and the microaggressions that we continually go through while at the workplace. And that's not the only place, but it's, you know, we particularly fail it at the workplace because a lot of times we may be that only one in the boardroom. Right. And that happens all the time. So uh, before we start to talk about intersectionality of racism and and sexism and and how this all comes into play, I want to get you guys opinions on uh, actually your feedback on what you thought about what happened last week. I mean, was it just a stupid wig joke? Was Sean Spicer just being condescending to April Ryan like he is to everybody. And guys, if you want to call in, you can answer that question as well. The number is 212-650-6903. Yeah, so, I mean, let's just be honest. Bill O'Reilly is racist. I mean, this is not anything new. Um, As I mentioned, like, this is an ongoing thing with Bill O'Reilly. There's no doubt about that. But So putting Bill O'Reilly's comments aside, obviously I do think that this is indicative of a larger issue that we have about the way that women are treated in the workplace and specifically about the way that women of color are treated in the workplace because it's even worse than white women. Um, But just forget about treatment for a second and talk about like the statistics about wages and about workforce. Um, I'm looking at the Department of Labor's website right now for the U.S. government. Um, In 2015, there were 10.2 million black women in the civilian labor force, which represented one in seven women in the labor force. Of those um, 90, no, I'm sorry, 9.3 million women were employed. However, on average, Black women tend to have less favorable outcomes than their white non-Hispanic counterparts, and black women still face a stark wage gap and are less likely to work in high-paid occupations than white women and, um, you know, Hispanic women. In Just to give you some numbers on that, black women in the United States who work full-time year-round are typically paid just 63 cents for every dollar paid to a white non-Hispanic man, and overall, women employed full-time year-round are typically paid 80 cents for every dollar compared to a man. So... When you look at the actual stats, um, not only are women getting paid less than men, black women are getting paid significantly less than their white counterparts. And that is a huge issue that we need to also be focusing on. Definitely. So that was Alyssa's reaction. Yeah, but Alyssa's- I, think, I think even more to the core of it, I like there's just a blatant disrespect and just not sense of like unworthiness by these white men towards these black women. And I think that, um, you know, we talked about April Ryan, like, 
she this is not the first time she's been disrespected in the mm-hmm. space like I, I, I you know it's important to remember that Trump asked her to set up a meeting with the Congressional Black Caucus when she asked him um, at a press briefing have you met with them yet and like that was so wildly disrespectful when you think about it he, you know this is a reporter asking him a question and he's like oh could you uh could you set it up for me like let- you let wanna... me let me add to that. Yeah, On top please. of that, Robert Gibbs, while he was working as press house, while he was working at the White House press secretary under Barack Obama, he cut off April Ryan when she questioned him about a botched state dinner. And in response, Robert Gibbs, Gibbs tells her, and I quote, to calm down. And then he audaciously compared her to his own child, <gasps> saying, and I quote, this happens with my son. He does the same thing. So this disrespect that April Ryan has been getting for years, no matter who is president, wow. is something, again, that is reflective of what happens to black women as a whole. So just to respond to the original question, of do I, like, what do I think about the way that O'Reilly and Spicer behaved? O'Reilly's a racist, a woman-beating um, sexual predator. So I'm not surprised that he did <laughs> yeah. this. Allegedly. So that we don't get sued. Yes, yes. Allegedly, because my lawyer told me I had to say that. Um, <laughs> Spicer is a is an underqualified, stupid press secretary who treats everyone like crap and yells at everyone because he has to defend a president who spends 24 hours a day lying. Uh, I think Spicer was more so just being himself, not necessarily not necessarily targeting um, April. I think that 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 um, O'Reilly was being the racist, bad person that he is. With that being said, I think that numbers don't lie, and African-American women are disproportionately mistreated and disrespected, not just in the workplace, but in every walk of life. Right, and I wanted to add to that because uh, some other people, especially on the right, were saying, well, Sean Spicer disrespects all people all the time. Like, he disrespects white men from that podium. But the difference is the fact that this just pretty much put a spotlight on the disrespect that black women get. Um, and you just heard the statistics from um, what Alyssa was saying, that it's it's definitely a case of inequality, right? And I know a few weeks ago, we spoke about International Women's Day and a day without a woman, and we were focused on feminism and how basically feminism was, is supposed to uplift all women yeah but that doesn't happen why because of their intersectionalities of race of class of gender and that is what intersectional feminism is and what our guest for that uh, show said she said that you know i don't identify as a feminist I, i identify as a womanist and something that i don't think we talked about is what is womanism womanism particularly focuses on the experiences of black women and women of color it was actually a term that was coined back in the ni- back in 1989 by a professor named Kimberly Crenshaw, and she basically said she defines it as you know a black feminist or a feminist of color, a woman who loves other women, whether sexually or non-sexually, and is committed to the survival and the wholeness of entire people, male and female. And another thing that womanism also includes is a community, right? So when black women call themselves a woman, like a womanist, basically what they're saying is I understand, I empathize, and I see what goes on with my black brothers, with my uncle, with my husband, with my son. And basically they understand why it's so imperative to uplift the community um, as, as they uplift them, themselves. Uh, this is probably wildly inappropriate for me to do, but I guess I'm going to use my male privilege and do it anyway. I just want to also like take into the fact that womanism is also the understanding that the issues of feminism that affect black and women and women of color are not necessarily the issues that affect white women. Because to be black and to be a woman 
or to be Latina and to be a woman mean different things. And it's acknowledging those things up front. So it's also the attack of racial discrimination, of sexual discrimination. So, for example, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there was a huge campaign in which they were euthanizing Puerto Rican and black women all across the United States and in Puerto Rico, and no one was talking about that, while at the same time over-sexualizing black women. That's not, and black and Latina women, that's not a problem that white women have. So that would be an issue that you'd probably see more within womanism. Right. Um, Jackie? Well, so I want to ask you, Selena, like, you are the only black woman in this room. Am I? <laughs> yes. Um, Stanley's a woman today. I think. According um, to the shirt. Yeah, Stanley's a, a petty black feminist, as, as his shirt reads, which I think is awesome. Um, but, you know, like, I, w- I would want to hear more about your experience. I mean, you filled us in a little bit at the beginning of the segment, but, like, how has this manifested? I mean, like, we talked about, you know, major income gaps. We've talked about microaggressions. Like, how has this affected you as a woman in the workplace? Well, you, it's something that's so, like, innate within me that it's something that I don't even think about. Like, I remember I told my friend... Um, he was actually on the show before Dustin Pletzer. He was mm-hmm. white. And I told him how I had this experience where I was going to this journalism conference. And, of course, you know, I was looking my best. I was dressed appropriately. And there I was standing in the elevator with this white girl who had on, like, a skirt with, like, flip-flops. And, like, she was – and, like, I was just looking at her. And in that moment, I just felt that privilege. And I'm like, her as a white woman can can go in there dressed like she just came from the beach right. and not be judged. But me – Right. And me as a black woman, if I would have came in there dressed like that, I, I automatically would have been stereotyped as being ignorant and ghetto and not knowing how to dress appropriately for this type of conference. And I told him that, and he was just like – like, so surprised. And then his surprise, him being that shocked, shocked me. And right. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, that's just something that's so natural White for me. White people don't get it. That's the problem. White people don't get it. When you live in a universe where you discover your problem, you're surprised and you find out it's a problem. And so I have another, I have a follow-up question to that. So I was talking, I was with um, several women last night, and we were talking about women being treated a certain way in the workplace. And, um, you know, I think that there, we were talking about women who sort of like accept it, not as a matter of like, oh, like I'm okay with this kind of treatment or behavior, but A, because they're so shocked by the treatment they're receiving, or B, they're worried that if they are to speak out against it, um, that they will be condemned or um, retaliated against or anything like that. And I think that Maxine waters this week did a great job of saying like you know i am established i know what i'm doing i know why they're coming for me like i am in my 13th term as a member of congress i am calling for the impeachment of our president to like let them come at me i don't care right like i think she did a great job but she's someone who's very established and she's very powerful and i think she has like a long history of experience this kind of like behavior towards her but have have you ever experienced that where you were put in a position where you you were treated in a way that was um unacceptable but you were like i can't even say anything about it because i risk my job yeah like i remember when i was working at that same station and my boss who was a white man said something that was very sexist and i'm like this is my job i mean it's something that happens every single day and i think how maxine waters responded she basically embodied how black women feel but can't say Mm. she went on national tv and said i'm a strong black woman i can't say that 
Black women can't say that at, at their jobs. Are you kidding? You'll be right. ostracized and fired. Right. I mean, because obviously, like, people are in different positions, and that's why, like, Maxine Waters, I mean, she comes from a place where she can say those things. Um, but there's another thing I wanted to mention, because I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up, which is um, if you think black women are treated bra- badly, um, even within that, um, black women of color who are trans are treated even worse. Uh, the suicide rate and the homicide rate amongst uh, trans women of color is extremely high. Um, but in terms of the workplace, it is extremely hard for trans women of color to get jobs. In fact, they are the most unemployable people in the country right now, which is an absolute shame, which is why you have so many trans women of color on the streets, homeless, having to resort to sex work or selling of drugs, which is just awful. Um, And yet there are organizations out there that try and help black women of color that are trans get jobs, um, which is great. But then you also have a certain number of people within the feminism movement that don't consider anybody who's trans to be a woman. Um, And that is equally problematic, um, which is and that's and that's not just a racial thing, which is why intersectionality is so important when we have this conversation, Uh, because there is just as many um, people. There are women all across the spectrum that are cis women who are born as women um, that are both black and that are white and everywhere in between that do have this position or take this position that trans women are not women. Um, and so that's something we should also talk about because, uh, you know, that's that's an important consideration when we're having this conversation about women in the workplace and particularly black women in the workplace that trans women of color are getting the short end of the stick every which way till Sunday, basically. That's absolutely right. Um, on that note, we do have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere when when we come back from the break, we'll continue the discussion about black women in the workplace. I want that song is make me want to get a hijab. Like it's okay, but not to, not to culturally appropriate, but like to celebrate and appreciate my celebrate Muslim sisters. Okay, fine. There's no way to celebrate it except for just posting up a beautiful woman in a hijab on Instagram because I can't wear one. I was just trolling you. We're back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, we are talking about black women at work and discrimination and attacks they face from white people, particularly white men. If you're wondering who's here, it's Stanley Fritz with Jackie Cohen, Alyssa Fuchs, and Selena Hill. And if you want to call in with a question or a comment, that number is 212-650-6903. Speaking of calling in with a question or a comment, we had an unnamed caller who is a regular listener of the show. It is not Miss Deborah. Miss Deborah, call. I miss you. Um, okay. But another person who called in who wanted to comment on Selena's introduction, and she said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but she said that if Selena does not want to be seen as uneducated or unqualified, then she should not speak like she's uneducated. And she pointed out three errors that Selena made while she was speaking. I, I don't remember all of them right now, but a apple, obviously, which was incorrect. And then um, something else that Selena said throughout the, 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 the portion of, of the segment. And then she moved on to me, your Shuli, and she said that Stanley, 90% of the time, is ineligible, which I can't really argue with, and that I need to take some speech classes, that she grew up in the Jim Crow era, and that they made no excuses and they worked very hard. She cares about the show a lot, but we, we complain about having all these tools, and it's very obvious that we have none to very few. So uh, I wanted to put that in there because, good point, you know, we, we we make these complaints about white people or like just people attacking black people for 
for things that don't make any sense, but are they justified sometimes? Okay, I absolutely disagree. I don't know if you were just uh, playing devil's advocate to rev me up there, but (laughs) I think that 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 comment, um, it reminds me of my great uncle. It reminds me of my mother always told me. And now that I'm an adult, I understand where it comes from, and it comes from internalized white supremacy. The thing is what's happening here is whiteness is being held up as the standard of white. Right. So what we're saying is white is right. So if you cannot live up to that standard, then you should be criticized and you should and and basically you're going to be called out. But what I'm saying is now that we are moving past that mentality, Miss Caller, who I am appreciative of you listening. Now that we're moving past that, I think that we need to understand where that stems from what you just said and what and how you think about that and how you perceive um, the white, whiteness and Stanley and I as being the only black people on our show um, is, is again, it's internalized racism. And I think that it's time for us to confront that. I'm not I'm not even saying that I 100 percent disagree because I understand the nuance in that, because if I was not told that as a child growing up, then I don't even think I would be where I am. So I understand what you're saying. But do you understand that it's stemmed in racism? That's my question for you, Miss Listener. Well, I, I would push back some because she's right. I talk too fast and I slur my words. That's something I've been working on. For, as well, as maybe as that I, portion of the comment. Well, guys, let me finish. Sorry. It's okay. I, I talk too fast and I slur my words. And sometimes you use the wrong words for things or sometimes you, you, you say things that don't necessarily make sense. You've been working on those things. But I would also say that put me up against any white man and I will destroy him in a verbal or written debate. Mm-hmm. Put Selena up against any white man, woman, dog, plane, or building <laughs> and she will destroy them in journalism well, and anything. And I, I, I think the point that you need to understand is you're talking to two people who come from severely underprivileged communities and who have worked without all the resources and are still here talking circles around any mediocre white person you could bring against us. And I also think that we need to to acknowledge double consciousness right because when i'm around probably people like the listener in my family it's we speak in a very common vernacular it's called black vernacular and we and basically what black people have learned to do is you can be yourself around other black people but as soon as you step outside those walls you need to be something else and we were forced to assimilate and again i think we need to understand the history of that i don't think she's attacking that though i think she's actually making some pretty like fair arguments about like talking fast, slurring, well, not well, using that, the right words. Well, that part, if you have a speech impediment, I understand that. But I think that there's that comment also sounds like it's rooted in white supremacy. It's something that I've been hearing. What she's saying is not brand new. When my mother tells me I need to be better than Becky with the the, the um, Becky and the, with the good hair, well, you she are. was te- no, she's not. What no, she, I said you are better. Well, what she imparted in me and instilled in me as a child is Becky is always better and is always going to be perceived as being better. And this is why you need to work. Th- as hard that's what that that's what she said internally well externally let me tell you these white people can't wash your dirty socks not according to our listener i I will say there's an entire like film genre called mumblecore which is like white people sort of like talking like this and like it's very like indie and like they talk like and like it's a film genre where like movies are being made and they're making millions of dollars right there it's like a very successful genre so i think speaking to the and i think selena you brought up a great point about the um woman that you saw at a conference that was wearing flip-flops and looked like she just came from the beach whereas you were dressed very professionally like i think 
you know, there's always going to be this double standard that's held. Um, and we saw it this week. I mean, this week, I, I know a lot of people watch on CNN. There was the debate between Angela Rye and Joe Walsh. Epic. Where, epic. Where Joe Walsh, I mean, Angela Rye truly shut him down. And I watched with pleasure. Um, Joe Walsh, one-term congressman, now right-wing radio host, um, said that, you know, we, this is a quote from him, we lowered the bar for Obama. He was held to a lowered standard because he was black. I mean, nothing could be so far from the truth. I think that Obama had, and and Angela Rye, he was responding to Angela Rye's comments where she said we basically, he basically had to be like Jesus for us to Mm -hmm. respect him, right? And he condemned her. He was like, you know, you can't compare a politician to Jesus. And she's like, I'm not, but I'm saying that that's how he had to behave in order for him to command respect from the American public, which I think is so true. And to to confuse it and say that Obama was held to a lower standard is just ludicrous to me no that jesus analogy is exactly what all i'm telling you black people black children are taught that that you need to be like jesus you need to be perfect in order to make it Alyssa. yeah no i I was just gonna say like in terms of obama um and the way that him and michelle were treated throughout their presidency i mean if obama did half of the things that donald trump has done in the first two months of his presidency like they people would have like jumped off a building trying to impeach him i mean that that's the difference and and the way that michelle was treated you want to talk about the way that black women are treated in the workplace the things that were said about michelle the racist memes that went around the internet the constant comments about the way michelle looked i mean michelle is a harvard educated lawyer who worked in big law who's probably smarter than barack is sorry barack but i think you probably (laughs) know that um i think he would admit And he would probably admit it. And yet the things that were said about her over the eight years of his presidency, the things that were said about Sasha and Malia, I mean, they were things that were never said about the Bush girls. So and the Bush girls would go out and get drunk and have like a slap on the wrist. And, you know, can you imagine if. Sasha and Malia behaved like the Bush girls. Like I cannot even begin to imagine. So I mean, what this really is, and you sort of touched on it, Jackie. I mean, this is a racist double standard that is rooted in a history of white supremacy that we need to put an end to yesterday. Definitely. So on that, with that being said, I wanted to also talk about how hair affects black women in the workplace. Earlier this year, a study proved what every black woman already knew. Uh, It proved that having texturized hair or natural hair was perceived to be, and I quote, less beautiful, less sexy and attractive, and less professional than smooth hair. Right. Than women who, like myself, get perms. And the study showed that white women in particular showed explicit bias towards black women's hair. And again, this uh, survey was um, was gathered by the Perception Institute and it came out earlier this year. And I want to just say that women in the workplace that have natural hairstyles, it's even harder for them. And it's something that, again, we are we know and we have to if we want to have natural hair, it's like you have to take this big risk. And I remember even my mother saying, like, I know you're not going to go on an interview with your hair like that. It better be. Yes. Like it's like I know it's like shocking for you guys, but it's like it's the reality. And even though what she was saying is rooted in white supremacy, it's also a reflection of the oppression. Right. Right. Being an oppressed people in this country has taught us that this is a mechanism for survival. And it's something that's still being passed down to our children. Now, me knowing better, you better believe I'm going to celebrate my daughter's natural hair and I'm going to tell her it's big. It's beautiful. And this is the way God gave it to you. You should see that. But I'm also going to show her the reality and say, 
like, hey, if you want to be a news anchor, if you want to, depending on if if you want to work in Wall Street, you're going to face some opposition. I'm not going to tell her to change, but what I'm saying is that it's the reality of the situation. Well, can I just say something? You won't need to tell her that because Be Her Enterprise will be a, will be a huge <laughs> business. <laughs> and we don't discriminate people in here. We're going to change that because we're going to create our own institutions and we're going to divest from these corny white ones. Well, you know, I have a question for you, Stanley, which is what, as, as a black man, what should black men be doing to help to lift up black women in the workplace and make sure that they're not treated like this? You've written a lot about things that black men should be doing to make sure they empower black women so in your opinion what should they be doing well black men first of all need to get a backbone and stop disrespecting black women because of their own male fragility i think we need to understand that black women and all women are our equals and they are not beneath us that's one and then two speak up it is not a black woman's job or any woman's job to address sexism or patriarchy it is a man's job it is a black man's job because men are the people who perpetuate the systems of sexism and patriarchy and i don't think that you can truly be an ally or say you love black women unless you're actually doing those things so the next time you see your boss try to get on your, f- your female co-worker because her hair looks nappy hey greg that was out of line or if you don't feel comfortable maybe send greg an email later on later on in the day because there's a reason why people like bill o'reilly or sean spicer feel empowered to go after black women it's because the people who should be protecting them or at least having their backs because i don't want to make it seem like black women can't take care of themselves right. but the people that should be having their backs consistently fall back and don't say anything how many black reporters and there's probably one and a half of them in there anyway and that press off meeting said something how many people reacted none so when when that when they said the thing about Maxine Waters, how many black people in the Trump administration came out and said, "Hey, Bill O'Reilly, you're out of line." <laughs> how many Uncle Toms at Fox said, "Hey, Bill O'Reilly," or oh, pardon me, Uncle Thomases? Thank you, Professor Harden. Yeah, right. How many Uncle Thomases at Fox News said, "Hey, Bill O'Reilly, you're out of line"? They don't because they love and they worship whiteness and masculinity more than they do black women. Right. No, that's a great point, uh, Stanley. I agree with everything you're saying, and I definitely want to talk more about how black women have been leaning in, how we work harder for. And I know that, listen, I wanted to share some very important stats. So it's just so happens that uh, Ty Wingfield, um, she is she works for the Center for Talent Innovation. And she's also a managing director at uh, the Hewitt uh, Counseling Partner. I had a chance to see her speak in person about this great study where basically they found out that black women, um, they aspire for leadership positions more than white women. Um, they're putting in the work. They are actually more ambitious, but they, the opportunities are not there, even though that they know they're capable of it. And I think a lot of it also stems from the fact that they may be uh, running a single hole, a single household. So they want the, they want extra work, they want extra responsibility, and they want that title and they want that salary, but they're not getting it. Whereas white women who may be coming, who may have a co-partner or you know maybe cohabitating with a man, um, they are less ambitious in those ways, and they're also getting paid less. Just to give you a little more information on that, in 2014, the median annual earnings for a black woman was $33,000 a year. The median average earning for a black man was $40,000 a year. A white non-Hispanic woman made on average $41,000 a year and a white non-Hispanic man made on average $55,000 per year. So there is a clear wage gap between the earning power of black women and the earning power of black men, but also the earning power of black women and the versus the earning power of white women and of course the earning power of a black woman versus the earning power of a white man. 
No, that's very true. And I know we have to start to wrap up this conversation. But before we do, I want to talk about solutions and give everyone a chance on the panel to talk about how they can be an ally. And I, I want to say that the Missouri-based activist, uh, Brittany Packner, she is the one responsible for um, helping black women at work, the hashtag to go viral, she said something really powerful. She said, you know, if you want to be an ally, don't just be an ally when stuff like this happens on TV. Be an ally right in your cubicle. So right. what do you guys have to say to that? I think that's great advice. I think listening to the women of color and your, and I'm speaking to you know white women, listening to women of color, believing them, I think is so critical. Like no one should have to convince you that they're being oppressed or that they're, you know, like bully people when they tell you that something's going on, right? And take their side um, and, and stand behind them. And like Stanley said, speak out, you know, use your privilege and leverage that to, to change what's happening. Because I, I completely agree. It's not just happening on TV. It's happening in all of our offices every single day. I mean, I would agree with that also. I'm not going to rehash what uh, comments have already been made. I'd also say in terms of political solutions, uh, we need to push Congress to pass the Equal work, equal Pay for Equal Work Bill. Um, as I already mentioned, women are paid significantly less than men on the dollar, and black women in particular are paid even less than their white women counterparts. We need to be pushing our politicians, even in this era of Donald Trump, uh, to pass that legislation, which would make it illegal to pay a woman uh, uh, the less than a man gets paid for the same work. Stanley? Black men step back, let black women step up, lift them up. Thank you for that. And I want to just say that, you know, we talked about in the intersectionality of feminism, and that's because black women cannot separate their race from their gender. I mean, for me, it goes hand in hand. Um, both are things that affect me each and every single day, and I can't put one over the other. Um, not everyone suffers from that, right? So white women, cis white women, just suffer from being a woman, right? And and there's differences in that. And I think that we need to acknowledge that. And another thing we need to acknowledge is that black women are more likely to experience violence, domestic violence at home. Black women are also more likely to be paid less for their work. That's something that we went over. Black women are also less likely to see people that look like them at their work. I mean, at their jobs, in the media, or even in political office. That affects us, right? That shows us that, like, you know what, you're here, but white women are here. And that's something that is also internalized within our communities. And black women, history has shown us, even in feminist circles, a lot of times their stories, their ideas, and their solutions were co-opted by the larger mainstream feminist movement. So again, if we acknowledge this and we understand our history and how a lot of this stuff is sometimes internalized within us or it's still being perpetuated on us, then I think that we can finally stop repeating the madness. There is a method to the madness, and if we can figure that out, then we can get past it. And I think that the, those of us who know better, I'm look, I'll say, I'm not going to try to tr teach my great-grand-aunt something different, but my daughter, God willing, she will be taught differently, and I think that's where that change is going to start and it's going to come from. On that note, we're going on a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming right back with the quickie. The clock 
is ticking, and it means we're almost out of time. And so you know what that means. It's time for the quickie if the clock is ticking. So um, I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I am your legal correspondent. I'm here with the quickie. Uh, This week, North Carolina reached a quote-unquote deal to quote-unquote repeal the controversial HP2 bathroom law. And the reason why I said quote-unquote deal and quote-unquote repeal is because um, it is sort of a bait-and-switch. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in a second, which is mainly what this quickie is about. Um, but before I do, I want to just back up just so that if you're not familiar with what HB2 is, I'll give you a, a brief thing, which is HB2 was the state law that mandated that transgender people use restrooms that match the gender marker listed on their birth certificate, regardless of how they identified. And it barred localities from enacting laws to protect gays, lesbians, and trans people from discrimination. Um, obviously, there was a lot of controversy about HB2. In fact, even though Donald Trump won the state of North Carolina in the Electoral College, the Democrat, Roy Cooper, actually beat out the former governor, uh, McRory, uh, for the governorship, and a large part of that was due to HB2. Um, HB2 has been significant because not only is it a discriminatory law, but it has also led to a situation where many businesses and college uh, athletics has you know, essentially left the state and said, we're not going to hold these tournaments here. We're not going to do your business here in the state of North Carolina because of this discriminatory law. Um, so as I started out saying, they have now reached a deal to repeal HB2, um, and a lot of people have started to celebrate. However, I think you should not celebrate yet, and that is because this This quote-unquote repeal is a poorly thought-out, dangerous backroom deal uh, that is being pushed under the guise of removing HB2. Uh, But in reality, this law would actually deprive North Carolinians of protections from discrimination for years and would retain the false notion that transgender people are inherently dangerous, which they are not. Uh, So this repeal law did away with the birth certificate requirement because obviously that was unenforceable. What are you going to have, the bathroom police that walks around saying, hey, can I see your genitals every time? you walk into the bathroom to make sure that what's in your pants matches what's on your birth certificate? No, because that's absurd. We don't have genital police in the bathroom, and that was never going to actually work. Um, but So it obviously gets rid of that, which is a great thing, although, as I said, there was no practical way to enforce that to begin with. But it also places a moratorium on schools and local municipalities from enacting their own discrimination laws for the next three years, which means it essentially bars schools and governments like towns and cities and counties from passing their own discrimination laws for the next three years until 2002, which is essentially to say it enshrines discrimination into North Carolina for the next three years because it says that there is no way for any local government to protect their trans people by creating their own anti-discrimination ordinances. And worse, it does this based on the notions of quote-unquote safety and privacy because, again, for some reason, people think that trans people are trying to go into the bathroom to do something perverted when in reality all trans people want to do is use the bathroom and if you're going into the bathroom to do something perverted it's because you're a pervert it has absolutely nothing to do whether you're trans or cis or gay or straight or something else you know the most notorious pervert who was doing things in a bathroom or trying to do things in a bathroom was a congressman who was a republican who was tapping his foot in the bathroom at the minnesota airport a couple years back, and he wasn't trans. So let's not forget that most of the people that are sexual predators in bathrooms are dirty old white men. They are not trans people going into the bathrooms in order to mess with you. Um, so we should just like put that out of our mind because it's not true. As I 
said this bill makes it illegal to protect people from discrimination. Literally, think about how absurd that sounds. It is illegal to protect somebody from 